Are you ready? Ready to release internal pain? To find confidence, clarity, and direction for your future? To live a life of meaning, fulfillment, and contribution? To trust your intuition again, but something's been holding you back? You've come to the right place. Welcome. I'm Ian Hawkins, the host and founder of the Grief Code podcast. Together, let's heal your unresolved or unknown grief by unlocking your grief code. As you tune in to each episode, you will receive insight into your own grief, how to eliminate it and what to do next. Before we start, I have one request. If any new insights or awareness land with you during this episode, please send me an email at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com and let me know what you found. I know the power of this work and I love to hear the impact these conversations have. Okay, let's get into it. I've been busy with a few other projects lately, so I haven't been recording as many interviews lately. So this particular interview is one from the archives. As many of you know, before I started the podcast, I was interviewing people live on my social media. I did about maybe a couple of hundred episodes before shifted it to the podcast. So I've still got a heap of old interviews there. This one is with a very good friend of mine, Peter Border. We met doing some training and uh, I actually explained more of that in the interview, so I won't go into great detail there. But what I will say is that Pete is a guy who is full of energy. This was so well received when I played it live. His enthusiasm is infectious, but he also has some really powerful messages on how to deal with grief, unthinkable grief, things that happen to his children that no one should have to face and how he's managed to handle that. Because it was August 2021 when we recorded this, there are some references to uh, what we're all experiencing at that time, pandemics and lockdowns and so on. So there'll be some dated references there. Uh, so that'd be interesting to see how that uh, how that impacts you on reflection. Talking about those things as well, uh, you're going to love this chat. Pete is an awesome guy, doing amazing things in the world, inspire inspiring in so many different ways. Enjoy. Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's guest, Pete Border. How are you, brother? Ian, I am fantastic, mate. Thanks for having me on. Welcome. Looking forward to this conversation. So Pete and I met uh, on a business program, would that be five, six years ago, you reckon? Yeah, I reckon, yeah, probably five years ago, I reckon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was amazing. Um, And Pete was already in this program, and for me, he was someone who helped me through the early stages of what we were learning, and um, I've said that to him recently. I I feel very appreciative for, for having that space, and what he taught me at the time was that no matter what you're doing, just being able to give like that unconditionally, which he did, was such a, a massive benefit. So great to be able to chat with you now and talk more about how you bring that into your life too now, Pete. Yeah, I, I do remember a very significant conversation that we had. Um, and I, we were we were both very different people at that time. Like I just come out of the corporate world and you were making that transition. And yeah, some of the, the questions that I had, well, I think that you, you were sharing those questions as well. And I, I felt as though there was something as part of that program, which is about getting our business started, that um, that I felt like I was doing very well and and wanted to share it because I could see other people struggling with the same thing. 
And I thought, oh, no, no, like this is how close you are. Like you're, you're this close. And do this one thing differently or whatever it might be or speak from the heart or whatever it is. Um, and away you go. So now, and I think, you know, the, the mutual friend and colleague and trainer that we had was inspirational for both of us. Um, yeah. So learning from someone like her. And it's funny, these mentors that we meet along the way that are yeah. a part of our journey, it's in, in hindsight, Steve Jobs talks about, you know, you can join the dots in hindsight, but as you're going through the stepping stones, it's hard to, to connect them all. But when you look back, you're like, oh, wow, like what an amazing uh, journey that was. And it's, it's a blast, man. It is such a good feeling to be able to reconnect with you in this space that you're creating and, and influencing in a positive way and healing and helping other people. Wow, what an opportunity. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Now, if anyone read Pete's bio, uh, this man is full of energy, like, like the bio said. So this is going to be uh, up level, this chat. So Pete, tell us, you're a wellness coach. I know you're really passionate about this. Yeah. Tell us about the work that you're doing right at the moment. Sure. So uh, running free seminars for the community here in Wyala is a real passion of mine. When I moved to Wyala four years ago now, um, or just under, uh, I really felt a need. So I was very much online before that and loved that. Got to connect with people from all over the world, which was really fantastic. And I'm grateful for the technology and the age that we live in to do that. But the passion really starts with, uh, now that I'm in a smaller community, 22,000 people here in Wyala, I guess everything seems to be much more tangible. You know, you say something here and it can have an impact over there pretty quickly. And I remember when I first got to town here, my father-in-law said, don't do the wrong thing by anybody because it will get around so quick and no one will ever talk to you again. And he was looking at that from a real fear-based threat perspective. And I'm like, oh, that's so good that word spread so quick because I just want to do and help people. I mean, obviously still some negative people are going to twist around things that you've said, but um, I think that goes with the territory. Um, yep. So very, very passionate about like wellness and mindfulness and all these things. I think they're, not that they're just buzzwords, but I think they get thrown around casually a bit, but wellness to me, is a, a holistic way of looking at being well, just becoming a well-being. So things like wellness, it's so broad, like it's about what you do with your time, what you do with cold, what you do with your breath, what you do with your thoughts and how much of an impact they have. Learning about the biochemistry, like what changes, what levels are changing physically in our body when we're thinking certain thoughts, like the physical change, like the biological change, is measurable, it's tangible, it's, it's happening, whether you understand it or not. And the thing that is impacting that the most is something that is very hard to grasp and hard to articulate, um, which is the thought. So that like this intangible, vague cloud thing has the most impact on the physical thing that you're feeling physically and on what you're bringing into your experience. So. If, if that could be the definition of wellness, it's just starting to pay attention to some of those things, um, then rock and roll. Like I love being the bridge, um, and that's probably one of the key phrases is being the bridge between where people are at at, the, at this moment in their journey and perhaps where they wanna be. I love being the person that they, that they relate with, they resonate with, and then we can, okay, now let's start going through this journey at their pace. Um, and I feel, sometimes I feel like I'm learning as much from the people I'm working with as they're learning from me. And I, I just think yeah. that exchange is so wonderful. And I, I love I love doing what I do. Like in the corporate world for 11 years, 
doing what I do now, it, it doesn't even, people say, what do you do for a job? Or what do you do for work? I'm like, I haven't worked a day in five years. Like I, some things, the admin stuff and the techie stuff, I, it's not, I have to really stretch myself to learn that. But once someone's yeah. sitting in front of me or once the seminar's up and running and I've got the clicker in my hand and I can go through the PowerPoint slides or draw on the whiteboard or whatever, it's like it's heaven. Like it's so much fun. It's so much fun. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I have those that same thought, and also with exactly like you said with the admin, Mike. Oh man, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm finding as many people in my team as possible to be doing those things because yeah, just just let me do what I do, and it doesn't feel like yeah. work. Absolutely. Yeah, man. You touched on something there really powerful. I remember listening to um, Les Brown say, "Language is the software of the mind." Oh wow! And it's like yes. So the yeah. words we say have an impact. People say, oh, they're just words. No, they're, they're not just words. Like I even love, like we talk about spelling, right? We're casting a spell in our mind of yeah. how we want things to be. Yeah. And being really careful of what we say and being real, con really conscious of what we say has such a deep impact in our wellness, our ability to heal, our health. So yeah. – if you look back at your journey to now helping people, what was the conversation you were having in your mind prior to you stepping into this space? What was the conversation I was having with myself? Wow. From a very early age, and I specifically remember, I reckon I was in about year eight or nine. I'd just gone into the senior school campus. Um, I was uh, grew up in Adelaide. And I remember I saw a, I saw a BMW driving down the street and it just looked really it just looked like a really nice car and i just i thought wow yeah like i want to be in a position to drive a car like that when i'm older so it sort of started as a material desire like i guess that you know you're eight or nine you're into cars and sports and girls and that sort of jazz so i was like that was what sort of caught my attention was this materialistic desire and that stayed with me for uh so i met my wife when i was 25 or 26 25 yep um, you don't get that wrong. I think, yeah, yeah, no, 20, I was definitely 25 in that case. Um, you know, I'm 36 now, I've been forgetting for 11 years. 2010, yep, so 16 years ago. Was it 2010? 11, 11 years ago. I'll get my maths right in a sec. Anyway, it's just a mere detail anyway. But the, the conversation, getting back to the conversation I was having with myself was that there's got to be more to life than just studying, working and dying. Like just there, there has to be more. I hadn't specifically met anyone or seen anything but perhaps it was the absence of meeting someone. Like my parents were very much just the, the same sort of rhetoric, bless their cotton socks, and they taught me so much and they gave me a really great start in life. Um, but there was just, there seemed to be just this internal compulsion to explore, to ask questions. And growing up in a Catholic upbringing, questions weren't, like my parents never talked about their beliefs very, very much. It was something that was sort of, we'd go to church every week and it was a very much an, an unspoken thing, like it was really sort of externally based, but I've got these internal questions and this thing that I'm like, no, when I close my eyes, I go somewhere. Like I still see things with my eyes closed. How does that work? And what's this all about? And and there's gotta be more beyond the words. Like, and there's this interesting context we can hold words in, spelling yes, and casting a spell and manifesting through that way. Absolutely, absolutely. Language is loaded. Um, the software of the soul and the software of the mind, all those beautiful things. Um, and it's also on that note, language, the words that we use to frame things, I've always looked at as like a bit of a snapshot um, or a gateway into what's happening underneath. 
So if we use a certain word to describe ourselves, we say, I am always this, I've always been a late person, or I've always beat myself up. That's interesting language that we would use. It speaks to something underneath. And if we look at the, um, you know, the period of, pyramid of the unconscious and the conscious mind with the, you know, I sort of draw this, this triangle and there's line across the, the top third of it. The top bit is the conscious mind. The underneath is the unconscious, like an iceberg below the surface. And the language that we consciously use is just a gateway to something underneath. So if we don't like the words that we're using, or if the words don't make us feel good, then there's probably something underneath which it's, which it, it's producing those, the way that we frame something. But that, yeah. getting back to that conversation that you mentioned, Ian, it was just an internal compulsion. And in recent years, it's, I've just been allowing it more and more. And literally in the last three to four months or since the start of this year, um, it's, the shackles have really been thrown off. There have been some very uncomfortable conversations I've had with my beautiful wife who believes very differently to what I do. And yet we are finding a way. And, and I think that's a real key part of the world today, especially the way that I view my relationship with my wife and the transparency and the openness that we have and the way I look at the communication that we've had and how the world is communicating globally and the fear is um, it's a very interesting uh, connection to my own personal relationships and to what I'm seeing in, on Facebook and social media and in the news and the world and people's interactions with each other. It's incredible, those connections. Absolutely. And I love that you've said even to the, the relationship with your wife, you can have very different views but still build that beautiful connection. And I think at this very time in human history, there are people with very differing views and yet what do we see mostly? We're seeing people just wanting to like fight about it. It's like, well, no, it's like understanding and being okay with that and then being able to do something that I know you're passionate about, which is taking that personal responsibility, which we'll come to. I just want to acknowledge we've got a couple of people watching here. Thanks for your message, Tappy. Uh, Judy, one of those people who was in that program with us. Uh, you're, yeah, Judy, nice to see you. Cheers, Judy. <laughs> I appreciate that feedback. It is good to be back with uh, Pete. And um, you're not wrong, Byron, Energy Plus, absolutely. And we've only just got started. <laughs> <laughs> so, Pete, uh, that question... There has to be more. Yeah, that was a, that was one of those questions for me, right? That same thing, yeah. and going through different challenges in my life where that question just started playing out more and more and more. Was there a like a big setback in your life that had you then exploring that deeper? Like, what took you from that young boy who was having those thoughts about there has to be more to actually going, or oh, there is more, and this is how I'm going to find it? Like, was there a moment? Yeah, well, I guess it was a series of moments. Um, I can remember specifically my brother gave me a book, which I never read um, for a long time. And I reckon it was back in 2006, I reckon. I just entered the corporate world and it was about property investing. Uh, I eventually read the book many years later and subscribed to the author's um, database. Never looked at any email, met my wife, so this is now 2010, and went along to a seminar, spent four grand on a program, uh, which was incredible, taught us so much. It was a TAFE accredited program of property investing, which is fantastic. And one of the first lessons was listen to this recording by Earl Nightingale called The Strangest Secret. 30 minutes that changed my life. I can specifically remember I was sitting at our little two bedroom uh, masonette in Unley, beautiful little part of the world when I first met my wife. And I remember like scrambling to get a pen and paper to write notes because I, I just didn't want to lose these things that I was hearing, like 
I never realized that the CD player in my car could play anything other than music. But like this audio that I was listening to was, it was incredible. So Earl Nightingale, The Stranger Secret, that was the dialogue that really shifted. And it's so interesting that I can remember the, the first phrase. Um, he talks about what's strange and it being a secret and that's not really a secret. The biggest secret is there is no secret. Um, but this, this idea, he said, this Nobel Prize winner was interviewed one day. And this is obviously set back in the, you know, the mid-20th uh, century, right? So, you know, the 1950s, I think that is, if I've got the maths right again, they were wrong. Either way, they just were, right? Um, but anyway, he talks about how, um, what's wrong with the world today? And this Nobel Prize winner, I can't remember his name, but he says, men simply don't think. And I remember that resonated so much with me. And if we look at the world today, we think, what's wrong with the, what's wrong with the world today? I think every individual human being wants to do good. Like we we innately want to enjoy this experience through life, right? So what's yeah. so what is messing us up? What is getting knickers so in a twist? We just aren't thinking. Now, someone with anxiety and all these other ailments are thinking too much. It's like you know they're they're behind the wheel of a car, the foot. There's a brick on the accelerator. They don't have their hands on the steering wheel. And then, the, the, you know, the mind is just, it's dominating everything. But then there is this moment where we're just, we're not having independent thoughts anymore. There's just this one collective fear-based discussion, dialogue, narrative that's being forced in our throats through every which way. And we aren't stopping to take a breath. And, and then allowing something to settle, to comprehend what's happening and to try and work out where, what influence do we want to have? Where do we want to fit? What direction do we want to go in? Am I in a car? Is the engine running? Am I accelerating? Do I hands on the steering wheel? What, what's happening here? Like when someone's obese and they're just compulsively eating, they're not really sure. They've got no idea. That the, they might know how many calories it's got, but they've got no idea the nu nutrition. They've got no idea what impact it's going to have on their biochemistry. They don't know. Like they're just in this ignorant state. Bless them. This is not a judgment on good or bad. But they're not thinking. So with, with, I guess, to sum up the work that I do, it is to just be a, a stop sign or a pause sign or a, something that just says, whoa, just you're, you're in here for a reason. Like you've parted with cash. You put your time, your energy, your effort to be here for a reason. Let's just pause for a second. So breath work is a massive part uh, of the work that I do because it just brings you, brings you into the now moment. Can, can I just pause you there, right? Because you're going 100 miles an hour and yet you're teaching people to stop and slow down. And yet, just yes. then, you did it. And with that breath, I just consciously, unconsciously joined in and yeah. felt the release. And I kind of feel like other people who are tuning in did just did exactly the same thing. <laughs> and, and, and it's that moment of pause of breath. So tell us more about the breath because that was powerful. Yeah, fantastic. Great, great observation. Um, so life is this it's this the i mean yin and yang sums up really well right like the the outgoing and the ingoing the inner and the outer the whatever it is but it's it's really this idea of like i've been told most of my life to tone it down slow down calm down put that down you're grounded all these things right like very much <laughs> su suppressing and I, I think that's what's led to most of my frustration in in life and i think so many people you know an emotion that is bottled or tried to be curbed in an irresponsible way or not in a constructive way, it's going to blow out somewhere. 
we're going to go and smoke ourselves to death. We're going to go and hurt somebody else. We're going to go and eat ourselves to death. We're going to go and binge drink, whatever it is. We're going to fight. It's going to blow out somewhere. When that's unconscious, there's a real problem. The energy that I share and the energy that I have, number one, it flows through me and it's such a joy to be a conduit to this thing. I had a session um, literally before we were speaking, right? Um, and for about the last 15 or 20 minutes, we just went into this beautiful, relaxed, hypnotic trance state, whatever you want to call it. I just call it a relaxed state because it disarms most people in a good way. Other words can perk up little fear-based stuff. But anyway, we so relaxed. At the end of it, he said, that was surreal. I said, I don't remember a word I said. And, I, I re and then he reminded me of a couple of things. I said, oh, yeah, I can remember that. But, but this beautiful conduit. So this energy that flows through, where the breath comes in, Obviously, we've been breathing since the moment we were born. And whenever we stop, you know, that has adverse effects if you want to live life. But it, it, bring, it re senses us. So it just brings us back into the now moment. Having lots of energy, as I do, I used to sort of worry about it. I used to think, you know, I'm, I'm going to put some people off. There are going to be people that are relaxed, that are calm, that are, you know, most people would say that I'm an extroverted person. And growing up, I think I was. But since I've had, been married and had kids, I've very much gone towards introverted like i really love quiet as <laughs> crazy as this might sound i really love sitting we, we've just been blessed enough to um divide a little piece of paradise and we will sit where there's there's no traffic um and sometimes all you can hear is the lapping of the ocean is and when it's really still sometimes you can't hear anything you could you could hear a pin drop even though you were outdoors. And I remember my brother and I went there uh, about a year ago and we went for a walk around a couple of different bays where there were no other, um, no buildings, no anything. You had to drive a long way out off the bed track to get there. And we just, we, we were talking the whole time and then we noticed there was this moment we just both stopped talking and there was just this stillness and we both said, oh my gosh, I can't hear anything other than either of our voices. And I just found that so amazing that I remember that. And he remembers that a moment too. About a year ago this happened. So the breath brings us back to that moment of stillness. And if, if we imagine like a, the mechanics of a slingshot, and if, if we don't stop to breathe, life will stop us. Life yes. will give us a reason to stop. And, and when life has to step in and say, whoa, whoa, pump the brakes, Pete, it's normally not as comfortable as willingly breathing and willingly slowing down. And life stops us in many, many ways. I love the analogy of life taps. You know, hey, Pete, hey, Pete, your wife said she feels like a single mum. When I had my first son, this is dovetailing it into a real story, the real truth here. Um, yeah. Your wife has just told you she feels like a single mum and she's crying when she said it, Pete. Now, that was a tap on the shoulder, which I nearly missed because my ego was so big at that time and so dominant in my life that it was all about that I had these goals lists and I'm not knocking goals. I love the idea of it when used in context. And my goals had 20 of the most exotic cars I could possibly imagine. It had a house that had a garage to house them all with all the down lights so it looked like a showroom. That was the vision that I had. Her goals list, Ian, there was one thing on her goals list. Do you want to know what that was? One thing to that she a, wanted. Do you want to know what that was? To be a mum. Very closely behind that was it was to just, I just want you. She said, I just wow. want you. So I'd get up on a Saturday morning. I'm like, here's a pen, here's a paper. Let's write our goals down. You know, I'm thinking I'm doing the right thing here. This is what I've been told to do. And I've got all these big lists, and she's got one thing. She actually wrote it down. She wrote down, I just want you. I mean, I nearly burst into tears on the spot because I'd misjudged things so much. 
So that was the kick up the ass from life, right? Um, yeah. But life taps, then it then it knocks, and then it will kick you up in the ass. And that might be in a relationship breakdown. You might end up on a hospital bed. You know, the smoker, for example, like <coughs> that's the tap. Your body doesn't want it anymore. It never did. You convince yourself it did. That's how powerful you can be. But then life gives you that 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 knock, which is you can't make it up a flight of stairs. Then you, you kick up your ass as you're lying back on the hospital bed and they're saying, you got to stop this. Um, so, yeah, so that's the breath brings you back into that moment of presence. Um, and this is not, there's nothing new or unique about what I'm saying here. In every, seemingly it seems, every culture or tradition or religion, there is some level of breath. Um, there was a book I read about nasal breathing. I can't remember the author, but he talks about even the rosary, you know, the, the Christian, the Catholic rosary. Um, if you say the prayers in the right breath, it mirrors the same breath length, uh, approximately, of course, as this ancient tribal thing way before Christianity. Like it, it's, wow. it's the same breath methodology, like the Hail Mary. And then you say it 10 times. There's normally a breath in between. Wow. Like it's almost like life's trying to communicate with us, right? So <laughs> almost, <laughs> um, yeah. I, I love that analogy. For me, it's always been the feather, the brick, and the truck. And uh, <laughs> and, I, yeah. and I've said on this, I said on this interview series more than once. We're going through a global truck at the moment, and uh, <laughs> people. <laughs> that is brilliant. <laughs> a global kick up the ass, right? So yes, yes. Now you know this, right? And you know to pause at the tap and breathe. But what was your what was your truck? What was your kick up the ass where you went? Oh, I need to pay more attention. Oh wow, man! This was a truck with no anaesthetic, and it seemed to me to be no warning because I, I felt like I was I was starting to do the right things. I'd really refocused on my family. Um, we made a decision when we had our first son. We've got uh, three biological kids and three foster kids, and we made a decision when we had our first child, Reuben, that my wife wasn't going to return to work. Um, and we're so glad we did. And now we live a life where we've got, you know, the coaching and the, the wellness stuff that I'm doing is is enough. Um, and we aren't, you know, living the, the full life that we want us to live, but we're on the way. We're on the way there. So getting back to this big this big Mack truck, it was um, four years ago now. It's what um, really woke us up to then relocate from – I grew up in Adelaide my whole life. And we found out that my father had been – doing things to our children that he shouldn't have been doing. And as hard as that might be to hear, it was even harder to live through that. And I wouldn't say that I cried a lot of tears, but I, I howled. And as a, as a male, um, and certainly I only saw my dad cry once, and that was when his mum passed away. And the impression that I still have now, he was in his room, the door was slightly ajar, mum was there rubbing his back, and I just, I walked in as an, an eight or nine-year-old at that time, would have just innocently done, and I saw him there and he had his head in his hands, um, and then he looked up and then he looked back into his hands, and, and I just sort of backed out and closed the door again. That was my only experience of, of seeing my dad cry. So yeah, wow. as a male, to then go through this experience and feel such sadness of lost guilt, shame, grief, Oh my gosh, like it was so immense. I'm not a big frame. Like I'm probably like 67 kilos and I was probably a similar um, weight four years ago when it happened or when I found out about it happened, I should say. Unfortunately, it had been happening for perhaps a long time before that. Um, I lost three and a half kilos over four days. Like, and I, I just had no, I had no energy, but I was, it was all adrenaline. Like I would have had all sorts of things that were just, you know, the, the, um, 
the, the again the biochemistry would have been all out of whack but i was somehow operating my oldest brother um really admired because he's nine eight and a half years older than me and he really admired how i carried myself throughout the time i started to grow a beard just because i, I didn't shave and i didn't want to get rid of the beard I, obviously i was very physically attached to it but i just thought wow this is like the beard of strength or whatever because something happened because my oldest brother sort of fell to pieces um when because i've got two older brothers by the way so there's three boys i'm the third of three boys and as much as i'm casually talking about this Ian, i'm not trying to overlook although there is an element of me that is becoming increasingly aware that i will move over my sadness with humor which is laughing things off um, and unfortunately for my wife it's anger and underneath those two things the chuckle the smile now even right now perhaps may be and I'm not, I'm not sure about it. I'm still learning how to get in touch with those things because for so much of my life, I feel like my emotional growth was stunted. But in real time right here, I can, I can feel some sadness in here. Um, I can feel some anger in there that I just yeah, uh, I and two, two days ago. Um, something triggered me and I punched a, a soft mat and yelled out, fuck you, dad. Wow. Out of nowhere. Out yeah, of nowhere. Right. Um, so there's certainly things underneath there that are masked. So, but I, I'm able to have this conversation about it. And if I burst into tears or if, if it brought up emotion, that's exactly what needs to happen. Yeah. So I'm, I'm up for that, down for that. Let's do a live therapy <laughs> session if we need to. But I'm, I'm, I, I also have this deep sense of peace and this deep sense of gratitude for the experience. Not condoning it, not saying I enjoyed it, and I think that's a clear distinction because some people, if I don't frame it correctly, they'll just go, number one, you're either, you're either buried at Pete or number two, you're a, sadist, you're a sadistic kind of person because how could you possibly be grateful for something like that? And, and I wish there was another way with no damage to my kids that I would still have a relationship with my parents that was functional and that was, that was two-way. I've certainly made peace with myself within what's happened and I've, um, in the definition that I have of forgiveness, I've released my father and mother from owing me a debt for what's happened. Um, but there's this beautiful peace that, that comes with just allow, surrendering to it and I, I letting feel, those things go. I can feel that and I hope other people can feel it too because, yeah, absolutely. And I think you, you've touched on two really important things there. You can find the gift in your grief, and when you do, it will set you free and you can find the peace that you just described then. It doesn't mean there's still not stuff because, yes, yeah. I very much felt that you have anger there. And yeah. <laughs> if we do have time, maybe we do do a, a live release. But, but you being able to identify that, find the gift in the grief and still find that peace within you. It doesn't change the memory. It doesn't change it being there. But that, that is really that ability to do that, man, powerful. So how did you come to that place? How did you find that? Mm. Meaning making is a massive part of it. So what we make things mean, and whatever kind of therapy or technique or strategy or tool, I wouldn't even use those words to describe it. For me, it's like what's, what's going to actually give you a tangible quantifiable or at least feeling difference. So what I made it mean in my life is, is so huge. A big part of, in addition to that as well, um, is looking into the history of my of my father. Like, how was he raised? Was did he ever have an emotion that he didn't express? Also, just most of his life was an unexpressed emotion. Yeah. A lot of the facial expressions I would see 
of my dad in photos. I never, I could never explain it. I see it. I see, again, we look back and we join the dots. I'm like, oh my gosh, like man, that guy had, and and I look at my mum in a, in a similar way, like with, and it brings up compassion, and I think that's the antidote, as a crude way of putting it, for the anger. Is it's yeah. it's easy to be angry at a monster, and certainly other people that have gone through the same exact experience that I'm talking about in my family have made my father a monster because if he's not a monster, then they've got to find a way to move on. If he's yeah. just a traumatized child that never expressed an emotion, that would elicit compassion. And I want to hate this MF. I want to yeah. hate him because yeah. I've got stuff in my life that I haven't resolved. I've got past trauma that he's antagonized, that he's brought out. And so I think it's, it's a magnifier. It's a microscope on what is below the surface. And on a global level, we're going through it right now as well. Yeah. The trauma that we're collectively experiencing is bringing into the screen that we watch through social media and whatever else. It's putting it in broad daylight, what has been under the surface and suppressed for so long on, on both a personal level. I, I have felt that through the experience that I've been through. And I, and I think that now gives people that have been through something like that in their own context, that doesn't have to be as severe or, you know, the, the scale doesn't have, doesn't, is quite irrelevant. But I think it brings a new vision and sort of opens the, the vision up to, whoa, okay. The fear that we see when someone's fighting over a roll of toilet paper has always been there, but now it's expressing itself through physical violence in a supermarket. Nailed it. It's always and, been there. Yeah, and someone said that the other day in, in a post, and I had to resist the urge to comment because they said, oh, it'll be good when this is all over so that the fear can go. And I'm like, no, you're not, you're not getting it. Like, yeah. the fear won't go. You're going to process that yourself. Whatever you're feeling within yourself isn't going to go because of these changes. It will show up in another way. And yeah, yeah. if we don't face the truck or the kick up the ass, the third level, well, what comes after that? Mm-hmm. Because you will be forced to face it at some point because, like yeah. you said, life will keep showing you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And ultimately, it depends how far we go with the conversation. And, and certainly, and I, and I love these sorts of conversations, but, you know, annihilation, extinction, whatever, like, yes, we have the power to end humanity on this earth. The earth won't die in the, the way yeah. that I look at things. The earth yeah. won't die. Like the earth has been around way longer than humans have. It's going to find a way. And I equate it to like a big elephant or a big animal with like these, you know, ants crawling over it, right? That's the earth with the humans crawling over it. And, and it, you, talk, you know, the earth is in symbiotic relationship with, with the ants because it's massaging them at, the, at that time. But then all of a sudden the ants get their teeth out and they start digging into the, into the flesh of this living thing, the earth. And they dig too far and it starts to cause pain to the earth. And then the earth realizes that, and the ants are actually fighting with themselves. Well, this is a bit of a ridiculous scenario. So I reckon the earth is at some point just going to shake it all, all up, over. you know, mm-hmm. and restart. But the earth can't die. And, and even if it did, if it spontaneously combusted into a black hole, well, what are we as human beings? We're spiritual beings having a human experience. So we go to the next one or whatever. I don't know. I can't tell you from a factual point of view. <laughs> but I think the, what, what sort of the smile on my face in the face of fear in the face of my wife wanting a COVID injection when I don't, and then having six children that are going to depend on mum and daddy making good choice for them, there's fear at every single level here. And the moment we start to look at that fear, and I, 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 there was a turning point recently, um, Ian, and it was, it was epic. It was one of those things that within a 12-hour period, 
I went from fearing the virus and the vaccine and fearing the fact that my relationship with my wife may break up because we, we spiritually, we very much disagree. And this was another area of life where I'm like, shit, she's going to get the jab, man. And I think that's going to be, I don't know what it could be. There's fear in me that's thinking about the jab. So I'm, yeah. I'm fearful of the vaccine. Okay, what am I fearful of in the vaccine? That Bill Gates wants to monitor where I am, that it's going to, um, you know, uh, what do they call it? Sterilize my children so that they can't have their own kids. It's going to be monitoring. It's all these things. That's my own fear coming through. Okay, yeah. my wife puts her foot down and in order to keep the relationship going or whatever way I balance out that equation, my kids are going to be immunized and they can't have kids or it's going to kill them early for global population control, whatever it might be that I'm hypothesizing about. Okay, so now I'm in 24 years, I'm 60 years old and all my kids are dead. Okay, cool, so I'm 60 years old. So I've been able to somehow, I've been forced to have the vaccine and I've died or I'm still living, but no one else that I love is around. What happens then? I think as morbid as this sounds, when we accept, we're still gonna be okay. Like, we're, we're gonna be okay. And this is what really helped me through the thing with my dad. If I never talk to him again, bless his cotton socks. If I ring him up and cry, bless the whole scenario. If I write him a letter, whatever the, whatever the case may be, he's had his trauma. I don't fear that trauma anymore. When I look at my hand, Ian, like when I look at my hand, the hair on my hand and the vascular nature of my hand is just like my dad's. My dad's skin was more tan than mine. His fingers were a little bit wider than mine. But I'm reminded every day that I have same hands as my dad or similar hands as my dad. He did really nasty thing with his with his hands. I changed nappies. It's ever present in my in my mind. What was Dad thinking at these times? Like, and the fear kicks in. The then the anger, and then the shame of it. What are people going to think when they realise that my dad's a pedophile? Like that word used to hold so much power over me, and 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 I see the hands every flipping moment. Yeah. Like that reminder. So if I didn't make peace with that, if I didn't like find a way and don't stop trying like whatever trauma people are going through don't stop trying like keep going you've got to go through the dump you know there's that beautiful book that says you know um we can't go over i'm going on a bear hunt you know we can't go over it we can't go under it look we can't go around it looks like we're gonna to have to go through it that's life that's the learning that's the trauma of life but this is the the the, the, the spectrum of life you can't have heaven without hell. What, and whatever way we want to frame it, you can't have bliss without pain. Whatever words that we would use to frame that, um, and I think there's a lot of resistance with, it, with some people with, with looking at it like that, but I guess from a very spiritual nature, I look at things, and there's this beautiful book or story, The Little Soul and the Sun. You might have heard of it, or people listening might have heard of it, The Little Soul and the Sun. And these two souls are in heaven. Or, or bliss, they're an eternal bliss. They're, just, they're in paradise, they're on your favorite deserted island with everything they ever needed. And they're chilling out, right? And one says to the other one, this is so good, but I don't know that it's good anymore because I've had it for eternity. Um, I've never felt what forgiveness would feel like. And the other soul says, we'll make a deal. We'll go down to this place called Earth. I'll be your dad, you be my son, I'll abuse your children, and I'll give you an opportunity to forgive me. And again, just dovetailing that in to the exact scenario. So I don't look at my dad as a monster. I don't hate him. I hate what he did. I wish there was another way that I could have been shoehorned out of my little hidey hole, financial safety net, 
parents around the corner that could look after my kids anytime, big mortgage, big income, big ego. I, I, I'm so grateful that, that that experience shoehorned me out of there into a smaller town, you know, where I can open a wellness center. Like, what the heck? Like, this is Peter Porter. And here, like, I pinch myself, Ian. It's incredible. Yeah. But that experience has, has got me here. I'm going to take a breath, Ian. Good call. Um, thank you, everyone, for the feedback and comments. Uh, people are loving this, mate. Um, Wonderful. So oh, am man. I. Where, where to next? Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think, like, if I think about all those different things that you said, it, it comes to the same place. Like, the grief is still there. The things still happened. But your ability to see things from a different perspective, and I love what you said about making peace with, well, if my children die but I'm still here, well, then, yeah, I'll still be okay. I'm, I'm with you. I, I believe we're all here with a different purpose and we're all here for a different journey. And the more we can let go of what what is meant to happen from the different people in our life, our, our, we, we care for our children and we want to protect them and give them the best. But if their journey was to come here for a specific purpose and leave us with something and to – have us look at the world a different way, so be it. Like I look at that now with my dad passing away, which was was my truck, right, and and me having to face a whole lot of different things. Making peace with that and realizing that it can be both things. I can be I can have experienced deep grief from all of that, but I can also see the gift in it, and I can also see, like you said, I've got this wellness and well, I'm doing this work now because of having go through that experience. What a gift. And my question to you is, if, you, if you, someone's listening there thinking about what they've been through, their moment like that, how do they go from that place, still feeling that pain and grief and anger and shame and all of those different emotions to be able to then find that peace? Wow. There's one word, which is surrender. And Along with that, it's this allowing, um, taking away the judgment of thinking that there is some sort of time frame on grief passing or that there is some type of schedule or chronological order that things are going to happen in. No, man, life's messy. And grief is going to be really uncomfortable because especially as, and not especially as a male, because I know that expressing any kind of emotion for anyone um, is a really vulnerable thing to do. But to anyone... And everyone who has been traumatized, which is most people, whether to a small extent or a large extent, this, uh, this idea of surrender, it's not a white flag give up. It's an allowance. It's a – the Dead Sea, nothing grows in it because it doesn't give out. It only takes in. But if you think about a free-flowing river – if you, found, if you found flowing water and you were parched walking through a desert or a jungle or whatever, you'd, you, mature judgment being applied here, you'd probably think that water would be, would be clean enough to drink because it's flowing. There's a flow to it. That's the surrender. The Dead Sea analogy is where you say, I'm not going to feel this or I'm not going to express this. It's or, or we resist it. Eckhart Tolle has, it's the resistance to the situation that causes the pain. Yeah. It's not the situation itself. The trauma happened. It happened. What causes pain now is the rhetoric, the story that I compound when I complain, when I whinge, when I make him the monster or her the monster or that situation the bad thing. 
the the empowered um, feeling that I get through the word and the act of surrender, it's it's hard to describe in words. I used to think of it, it was a give up, it was a weakness to surrender because of the way it's portrayed in, in battle, victory, war, and that's our culture, that's the society we live in in the Western world, but also the world at large is a win-lose society. It's competition. Yeah. It's survival of the fittest. Some of the things that I've been listening to recently over the last six or eight months, um, even about Charles Darwin, he wrote into... Um, the origin of species, that at some point in the future there may be information that comes out that may nullify some of his own philosophy. Even as the writer of it, he was open to the idea that it might that, that something might happen in the future that may, wow, that's just going to change the game. And I believe that the way Jesus Christ spoke was that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if you believe in me, that's the pathway to heaven. Because if you can't damn well believe in yourself, then I'm here to be a testimony and you can believe in me. That's, that's just how I took it. Because when he also says the kingdom of God is within you, well, okay, am I a God as well? I think I am. I think you are. I think that when I look out, I see a version of me. I think that when someone resonates with my energy, there's a part of them which wants to go, whoa, life's so much fun, even when you're traumatized. <laughs> Even when you've gone through a tragedy, your biggest test can become your biggest testimony. These aren't just cliches. And I, I feel like I'm on a roll here, but I, I think this is when we let go and surrender, we can allow ourselves that all you're looking at now, anyone, all anyone is seeing right now is just the five-year-old Peter Border that wanted to express this for so long. The, I'm 36 now. So for how many years that I've kept this in because I was conditioned by imperfect, traumatized parents that were doing their best. 100%. What they had. Yeah. And I think that reframing, making a different meaning out of it. And even if I am absolutely full of shit, and if everything I believe is scientifically proven to be false, and I arrive at my grave peaceful, happy, having made a good impact, having raised good children, having been a great husband, I'll be wrong every day of the week. <laughs> I'll eat all my words up. From the oh, I, love it. Oh, I heard this the other day, and you know, I've got to share this with you. I'd rather be optimistic and wrong than negative and right. Oh, and I just, when I heard that, I was like, oh, oh my gosh, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm happy oh, as a bubble, man. <laughs> I love that. I love that so much because, because ultimately that should be everyone's goal, to feel better within themselves. And that art of surrender mm -hmm. that you talked about. Let's go back another step. So you're yeah. saying to people, surrender, who've got no concept of the word other than what you said. They've learnt in in popular culture, Western culture, like global culture. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How do they find that place of surrender? Could you give us a technique, a, a process? Yeah, absolutely. So we, it would obviously start with the breath. Um, I think creativity, so being creative around how we find a place in our life where we can have, and I guess what I'm trying to say is we need to have some sort of framework. And this is where I think religion um, and some sort of structure can actually be quite useful. As suppressing as it has historically been, I think the gist of it, if we take all emotion away, I mean, my parents were Catholic, went to church twice a week, and they were abusing my kids. My dad was, my mum was condoning it. Or I should say, 
not stopping it, not owing something to her 12 grandchildren, right? So the, the whole idea of how that can be used, um, it can be very negative as well. But I think the framework, so how does someone go from, I think surrender is a white flag, Peter, and I think it's, it's, a, it's a disempowerment. Okay, how do I go from that to then finding this amazing place that it, it appears that you have found where surrender is empowering? I think the first step is to develop obviously total honesty with ourselves owning everything even those things that we aren't responsible for and it's again it's counterintuitive how can i possibly be responsible for this cancer how can i be responsible for my parents abusing my children how could i possibly that's it doesn't even it's in bad taste to take that sort of responsibility and i'm not suggesting taking responsibility for the physical thing or the and again, this is where context, and I call it mature judgment. If it sounds like a stupid question, maybe it's a stupid question. Like maybe it's one of those questions that you don't even need to ask if you are really honest with ourselves. So this idea of surrender, it starts with total, total honesty. And I think where we, where we uh, catapult over the obvious, it's just in conditioning. It's just because for, it's, it's hard to express emotion, vulnerability is seen as weakness. It's that, so it's, it's becoming aware that we are conditioned. And I heard a phrase in this seminar one time that the moment we think we're not conditioning, our conditioning is complete. So it's, it's, it's unwinding. It's, it's just, uh, and Bruce Lee says, you know, people would come up to him and say, teach me what you know. And he would say, the first thing is, you've got to empty your cup of knowledge first. You've got to empty out what you think you know for me to be able to teach you, you know, I'm paraphrasing there. I never met the man, um, but, but, but some of the, the philosophy that he lived by was quite remarkable. Um, so I think when we look at the word surrender, let's not get, and we've talked, we started this conversation with words have meaning, language is loaded, right? But also they're signposts to something different. And the analogy I gave was when I use a certain phrase or someone says something to me, it's a signpost of what's happening underneath. So if someone says, well, the word forgive, so people say, I could not possibly forgive. If I was in your, I couldn't forgive my father if he did those things. Well, we're going to first understand or at least distinguish what's your definition of forgiveness or surrender and not, and not even verses. I was about to say verses, but there you go. But in addition to that, what is somebody else's definition? What do they mean behind the word of forgiveness? Because I think, again, most people mean forgiveness is condoning. Forgiveness is saying, that's okay what you did, Dad. No, it's not okay ever in any language, in any, with any word, whatever you want to put on, to abuse another child. That's not okay. But does that, make, does that make Dad a monster? No. It makes him a sick, traumatized person who never found an outlet. And, and even now to this day, and the, the longer they carry the lie with them, as they still do, obviously, like most people just in that situation, they just continue it. They recruit other people and they get enough people that then convince. Perhaps pathological lying is you forget the fact that you even started a lie. And that's, again, we get our knickers in a twist because when you multiply this at a global level and we're so conditioning to hearing a lie, it's, it's hard to know what the reality and what the truth is. So how do we go from that word surrender? Just total honesty with yourself. And, and I guess one of the first things we talk about is have an independent thought. Don't surrender because Peter Border passionately said it's what changed his life. If you have a yeah. different version of what surrender means, maybe that's the worst thing that in your terminology that you could possibly do because you don't want to surrender to a pedophile. You don't want to allow that 
to happen. You don't want to give over and let that shit go. No, do everything you can to stop that. And put your own definition in that is useful. Let's move away from competition. Let's move away from good, bad, positive, negative, right, wrong. Let's move towards useful, not useful. It's useful that there are vaccines for something. It's useful to have something called Western medicine. That's useful. It's, it's not useful when it's driven by fear to encourage people. I, I was watching the Olympics for the first time yesterday and I saw the ad and the, at the end of it was the Australian government ad for the COVID vaccine. And I'm not knocking anyone. I'm going to love my life, my wife for the rest of my life if, if or not she gets the jab, right? But the way that it was framed, I think that even people that are pro-vaccine, we need to have a small issue with that. And when I say issue, yeah. we need to become aware of how it's being framed. It's convenient if you're pro-vaccination to agree with the way that ad comes across. By the way, the ad came across with, it's the only way forward and it's the right thing to do. Or words to that effect, there were two key points. And I'm like, they're, it's like they're making a moral judgment as the government. And I'm like, but that's not, that's not going to allow any kind of independent thought. Whatever it is, whether yeah. I agree with it or disagree with it, it's the methodology used to put forward a, an agenda. And I wrote a poem the other day and it started off, it, it struck me at about 10.30 and I was lying. I was like, we all have an agenda. I have an agenda. My agenda, yes. I want to be more open and transparent about because everyone's got an agenda. But it's when the agenda is hidden that people's bullshit meters start ringing bells. But I guess because there's so many other alarm bells going off, I'm all traumatized people that haven't found a way of comprehending those things yet. We, we, we don't see it. We, we, get, we blind ourselves and we allow ourselves to be blinded. Um, and that's the challenge. So it's, it's in this, you know, it's fine that we vet social media when it's stuff that we don't agree with. It's okay to, to limit freedom of speech when it's stuff that we wouldn't agree with. Well, okay, yeah. by that same token, if now we agree to legislation about that, what about when it isn't so convenient for you? And what yeah. the way that you want to live is now repressed and restricted because there's another legislation that you actually voted for or, or allowed through non-action or too much action or aggressive action or violent action, which wasn't necessary or whatever. So I think just becoming aware of what's happening and that the underhanded agenda that is at play and to call someone who questions that a conspiracy theorist or whatever, it's just it's just a more outward reflection of the fear of but shit, well what if that's true? What if what if they did lie to me? What because if I question that and there's this cool movie uh, called um, uh, Smallfoot, it's a kid's movie, but it's for adults. And it could it, when I first watched it, I thought, wow, that's the Catholic Church. But it could be any institution or any organization. The way that the movie's framed is there is this small community of Yetis. And there's a stonekeeper who wears a robe made of stones. And all the laws that they have are written into stone. And the moment you question a stone, you're out. So one guy, so there's this stone that says there is no smallfoot, which is a human being. Smallfoot doesn't exist because there's this big history about it. Smallfoot killed yetis. So they have this thing, smallfoot doesn't exist. But even the definition of something doesn't exist. Well, then why have a stone about it at all? Like, if, if it never existed, why have you got a stone saying this doesn't exist? It didn't make any sense, right? But then this one character, Migo, goes and sees a small foot, comes back and says, I saw a small foot. And the, the stone says, get out of the thing, get out of the, the community. Nullify what you're saying. And um, not, is it Copernicus? Galileo. Back in the day of the Inquisition, the Inquisition was that, that time where the early church, I think it was in the 1400s, um, Galileo was looking at the sky and noticed that the earth revolved around the sun. 
that the Earth was no longer the center of the universe. He, he just observed. He just got a really powerful telescope and looked at the sky and wrote down his findings. That's all he did. He was told by the church at the time, tell everyone that you lied or you're, <laughs> or you're out. So the same story repeats and repeats. Isn't that hilarious? Yeah, and, and the quote that I read this week seems to be appropriate. And again, I'll like you, I'll paraphrase, I won't get it hundred percent right, but <laughs> the truth doesn't feel the need to defend itself, whereas the lie does. And wow. what yeah, right. And what, what you said there about like no matter what you believe in which way you're gonna choose, like how the message is being delivered. Like it's even like the um, the uh, the anchoring, and for those that know about language and how that can be used to manipulate through these things that we have. Because I'm the same. Put the Olympics on, and I'm like exposed to, to commercial TV, which I haven't watched in years. And it's like the manipulation and fear-driven language that is used through through all of it. Like I worked in television for 20 odd years, right? So that was part of my job was to I worked in the programming department, right? Yeah. Like we're literally programming people what to how to act, what to watch, and then like and then being able to find that space like you said to breathe and then have your own thought, which was kind of where we started from, mm-hmm. then you can make your own decision. And if that shows up different fears and other different things, then so be it. And that and that is that is the personal responsibility that we all have. Yeah, yeah. You're so fun. So, so, Pete, you touched on something before. I'm sorry, this this crackling at some end. I don't know if that's you or me. But um, you talked about um, you being more introverted. Now, given how speaking to people in front of people gives you so much energy and you putting so much energy, I'm curious to know where you get that thought of being introverted from. Does does being alone actually energize you or – is it more you just like that, the serenity of it, the opportunity to step away from the world and breathe? Talk me through that. Yeah, awesome question. And it's a, a journey in progress, I guess. Um, I feel so good. In, so right now, so this is, this is heaven for me. So this is, this is like heaven for me. This is a beautiful place of peace, of obviously of confidence as well that people can see. Um, there's divinity. There's whatever word we put on it, like in flow, right? And I love that feeling. I also love the feeling of, and it's funny because I got into the, I got into my ice bath this morning, and I started to feel like I start to feel that thing grip me, and then I thought, and then this thing happened, and it's like, okay, well, what are you going to do next? I thought, well, I want to be smiling, and so I smiled, and then my kids were outside, and they said, Dad, come and have a look at this, and I said, I'm just in the ice bath, I'll be out in a sec, and they said, oh, ice bath, so they came around and had a look. And normally I would shoo them away because I'm like, oh, I've got to focus, I've got to stay focused. But I just answered some questions. I said, why do you get in here? And they were asking me about why I do this sort of crazy thing. And I was starting to explain that, you know, it's just exposing myself to a stressful situation. How am I going to respond? And look at me. I'm having a conversation with you and I'm not agitated. I'm not angry. Even though my body's really uncomfortable right now, I'm, I'm balancing that. And the feeling I have afterwards, guys, is really great. There's another lesson there. You know, you put yourself through some, you know, measured, responsible not stupid, not idiotic, not dangerous stress. You do it consciously, awake, aware, and then you get this afterglow, this incredible, and I guess where does the energy come from? Like when the cold goes in, I literally feel like the energy of God is pouring in. 
And throughout the rest of the day, it just it just drips out throughout the day with every interaction that I have, whether it's here or whatever I can direct it into. So yeah, so it's this constant balance. So I guess I call it introverted just because it's quiet. It's just a space where there's as little noise as possible. I love having my eyes closed and being awake. I love having my earbuds in and having some music that can just lead me down somewhere. I love having no noise. That's why this, this place at this piece of paradise, it was so surreal because I was outdoors, no earbuds. I just closed my eyes and lay still on the sand and it was incredible to be outside. And you might occasionally hear a bird chirp. I mean, if God could speak, what would it sound like? I reckon it would sound like that. And, but you know, but I hear my, my little daughter, you know, she's four years old, the way that she speaks, I'm like, that's like that bird as well. So the introverted thing is, um, I think just that I love the balance. I love to go full on and really go for it. And then I love to just be still. And it, it's both of them are amazing. I'm not even sure which one I like most. I just think that the diversity of life, like the richness of life, is like that and I don't think I would enjoy this flow energetic state as much if perhaps I didn't have the quiet but I could be wrong on that I've been, I've been wrong before so <laughs> uh, you're right on that so I don't know if you've seen this um, Steve Kotler uh, has uh, a flow dojo right so he shows people how to get into flow he yes, talks about Steve the, Kotler, yes yeah yeah the four stages of flow yes and, yes. and the third stage is flow the fourth stage is rest review and recharge yeah, right. Yeah. We have for those those of people who are familiar with their flow, where everything just like lights up and everything like, yeah, but that actually exhausts me. It's like no, no. While you're doing it, it gives you so much energy. It fills you up. It gives you fulfillment, satisfaction. But it actually, once you're finished, you're exhausted. That's when you need to do the the rest, review, recharge. Mm, 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 mm. So that your ability to step into that place, you're doing that. Just intuitively, right? It's mm. it's yeah, wow. Okay, that's a good one, and I love that you added in the, the ice bath because I wanted to to uh, mention that. Um, I want to talk about one more thing. So, if yeah. we had, well, actually, you know what? We have unlimited time unless you've got to go somewhere. No, I've booked out. I've booked out the rest of my day. In fact, the morning is when this uh, finishes for me. So. <laughs> All right, let's talk. Let's talk cold exposure. So, some of some people yeah. would have been familiar with the work of Wim Hof. Um, I love when when he talked about being injected with bacteria and um, how he breathed it out of your system in in three hours. And the yeah. the, uh, the the doctors and the people who were doing the study said, "Ah, oh, but you're the ice man. You can do anything." He said, "That's." That's okay. I'll teach three thousand people to do it, and we'll do it under clinical conditions. And, and that's what he did, right? So, mm -hmm. so how did you get introduced to uh, Wim Hof, and and what was the um, the impact for you? Yeah, so I've been having cold showers for a long time, uh, doing the training that I did um, many years ago now, which got me into my hypnosis training and that sort of jazz and the NLP, um, and just um, just starting this whole journey and really ramping things up. Uh, I was already having cold showers, and uh, my coach at the time said, you need to go and do an ice bath, like to really shock the nervous system. And I did a couple, but it, it, it's a bit of an arduous task, like fill up the bath and you got it with cold water, then you got to get your ice from the service station, right? Over. So it was a bit of a hassle. But then recently, like, so since moving to Wales, so I'd always maintain the cold showers. Um, and mostly for me, it's a, a mental overcoming of fear and discomfort. 
There's many other scientifically proven and felt embodied biological benefits as there are some biological risks which need to be considered. But that's a very small part of the picture. But the main thing for me is it's uncomfortable <laughs> no matter what way you look at it. No one can do it for you no matter what way you look at it. And you're doing it willingly. Like it's so I, I guess that combination for me, I'm in. Like I'm in. Yep, cool. Where do I sign? Let me do this. And the ice bath has it's really pushed it to a whole new level because the risks are higher um, and they're legit risks. Like if you pass out in an ice bath and your head goes underwater, you're gone. Like it's game over. So not to overstate that, just don't be a douche. Like don't be silly. Um, so my wife and I have got a deal. Like if I'm at, so my ice bath is under about 70 kilos of weights and which means I've got to lift them up to move them off, which gets my arms moving already. So that's deliberate, but also it's behind lock and key in, a, in our garage. But I've said to my wife, if I'm out there for longer than five minutes, just yell out and make sure I yell back. And if you don't hear from me, come and check on me. Um, I've been in there for about seven minutes is about the maximum. It's, I don't even time it anymore. Um, but I listen to my body now. But the reason I do it is to bring myself. It's a for, it's, it's like it's not gentle. Like it's very much a push. Like you are, you are really forced. But I guess... I think it's Zig Ziglar or someone said, you know, if you are hard on yourself, life will be easy on you. And again, we've got to keep this in context. It's not about sadistically hurting ourselves or, you know, and the whole religious connotations with suffering. Don't seek out suffering. You can have wisdom in trauma, but I'm not going to go and seek out trauma to go and have that experience so I can find a gem of wisdom. I'd rather listen to Ian or listen to somebody else and, and go, oh, wow, look what they found. And humble myself, humble myself to learn from somebody else. Because Winston Churchill says we all love to learn, but we don't like to be taught. Because by being taught something, I have to acknowledge that Ian knows something that I don't. My ego has a problem with that. So it yeah. blocks it up and it tries to nullify what Ian says, or then I have to come in with what I've got because I'm better. Like that's the ego doing that. So the ego can't exist in the present moment because egos are kept in check in ice baths. Like that's what separates the men from the boys. Not yeah. to be sexist about that, but that's what that's what it really is the difference between if someone's got depression and they're angry at themselves, go get in an ice bath. Now be angry at yourself. You're gonna cry. You're gonna fall in love with yourself again. Because there's gonna be a part of you that is absolutely shoved to the side in no uncertain terms. And the real you is gonna remain. And that real you, when you reconnect with that on a daily basis. When, it's, when no one's going to carry you, when it's always going to be uncomfortable, far out, man. Like, oh, wow. Like, it's, it's life-changing. You can't run away from it in the cold. You, can, you yeah. can't escape. And you're putting yourself in there. It's unbelievable. <laughs> I know a good friend of mine who is like, yeah, to, to treat and, uh, depression and, and other different mental challenges. Mm-hmm. It's changed his life. Changed his life. Mm-hmm. So... If ice bars are not for you, then just find another way to, to find a place that's uncomfortable so that you can, like Pete described, fall in love with yourself. So, like, that's one way. There are so many different ways. Uh, what's interesting, I've had this conversation. See, Capriel's on here. She, we've had this conversation. It's like when something hey, keeps Capriel. showing up, when something keeps showing up, Pay attention. So I'm feeling like the fact that I'm having this conversation again today is that <laughs> – this is my uh, 
This is my uh, my push. I need to uh, do the uh, cold American. Oh man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So right there, hey, e, can we flip the script for a minute? So right yeah. there, so that oh man, like that—that's yeah. the start. That's the start of a story of a rhetoric. I know you already know what I'm saying here, but for everyone yeah. watching, like, so I did I did a seminar just recently on um, cold exposure and breath and breath work, and I know that most of the people in there were scared that I was going to say, okay, and out the back I've got an ice bath, we're going to go and jump in it. Like they were constantly scared of that. But this is the thing, what's it bringing up? Like, what are we scared of? Like, it's water, you don't drink it, you die. We're mostly made of water. The earth is mostly made of water. Like, there's signs everywhere that this can be a nourishing, healing thing. Yeah. Just as a very, very quick disclaimer, ice bars and even cold showers are going to shock your system. <laughs> That's the point. But the shock, it's not like a gentle, oh, yeah, that feels really nice. It's a, bam, it's cold. And your breath is going to go for a second. But guess what? It's going gonna, it's gonna to force you to breathe. You're going to go, <gasps> well, your body needed that. Like it needed breath the whole life. Like you, you needed to breathe in then. Yeah. And then it's, it's the microcosm of a stressful situation. How do we behave in a stressful situation? Well, in a cold shower, most people are going, <laughs> and they can't wait for it to end, right? Yep. How do we respond in a stressful argument when someone that we love has a different opinion? when someone's in our grill about differing opinion again, and they're really telling us that we're wrong. Another stressful situation. How are we handling that? Are we going, and and you're a bad person, and you must be wrong, and I'm right, and we get on our high horse. Is that how we respond? I think that's what's happening most of the world today. But what about if we took a breath? We We got present, number one, we got present. We took a breath. You know, we might introduce a bit of gratitude in there as well. Like, I have the ability to walk out of this water. I have the ability to walk out of this uncomfortable situation. Some people are stuck in abusive relationships. Some people cannot find clean water to drink. Some people don't know where the next meal or paycheck is coming from. Some people don't know where they're sleeping tonight. Wow. If you can tick all those boxes, what? You're, now you're going to complain about being uncomfortable for one minute, for two minutes, and you're going to freak out? Like, this is just, it's a good reflection. Like, it's a really good reflection. How do I go, how do I approach this? And it's okay to be scared. It's okay to feel fear. The old man is okay. I'm not saying we remove that. And by the yeah. way, I old man all the time. Every time. <laughs> it's always this. And this is the beautiful thing. Wim Hof, he says the cold, he says it is merciless, but it is righteous. And what I interpret he means by that, it is merciless. Every time he gets in the cold, he knows it's cold. He's the guy, right? He knows it's cold. He doesn't want to get in there because he knows it's cold. It's going to be uncomfortable. But now he has an opportunity to get present and to choose what he's going to do. And obviously, if you have a bulletproof methodology that's going to get you through that, that's going to over, overcome an autonomic response, I mean, we don't have to look too far to see how empowering that can be. To fend off a deliberately injected bacteria consciously there in, in the research that I was doing for this seminar, I discovered some Polish doctors that literally quoted. They said, we're going to have to rewrite textbooks because of what he's showing is possible for the human body to do. What they thought yeah. was automatic unconscious. You have no choice. He's showing and teaching others who are then showing that the textbook is wrong. And when you get to textbooks, I, I love this idea. I just thought that they, who wrote the first one? 
who wrote what, you know, man discovered a pen and a paper and the ability to write and communicate like that. So who wrote yeah. the first textbook? Someone who had an experience. Yeah. I think that we need to have more of the experience embodied research. Don't believe Peter because Peter's done it and has done something about it and is talking about it passionately. Go and do it if you feel so inclined and you don't have to. And you don't have to not do it because I said you don't have to. You do it because you want to do it or don't want to do it. But if you were inclined to and you wanted to discover it for yourself, go into a cold shower and walk out angry. Impossible, I would suggest. Impossible. Every single time I come out of a cold exposure, I, I will be laughing at myself for the fact that I've actually done it. I'm like, oh, my gosh. You had the hot water there, but you chose the cold. That's a funny thing. I think that's a bit ridiculous. You're feeling pumped up. All the endorphins are running, all the dopamine, all the happy chemicals are happening. You're no longer uncomfortable. In fact, you're incredibly comfortable. There's no physical pain in your body. You're just feeling great. Like every time, man, every – that's not any – I exaggerate and embellish, right? But every time I've walked out of a cold shower – I, that is not an exaggeration. It is just yeah. an incredible feeling. Love it. All right, I, I'm, I'm going to do that just to just so I can get out the other see, other side of the cold exposure and see if I'm angry at you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so for the, for those watching, right, and I, and I want to emphasize this because this has been my experience: is that don't and Pete touched on this. Don't don't do it just because Pete said it, and don't choose that particular method. Because there is infinite numbers of ways to be able to go through that same experience. <laughs> Find the one that's calling you, whether it's yes. kinesiology, whether it's acupuncture, whether it's whatever it is. Like there's, there's so many different ways. A client was talking to me, talking to me this morning about Reiki. Like whatever's calling you, be open to experiences like Pete said. Know that you can shift your physiology. You can shift your beliefs. You can shift the grief, the emotions, all of those things. Because on the other side of that is that Pete's, that Pete described before, that hopefully you all felt when he described it like I did. Um, yeah, really powerful, Pete. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Ooh, wow, that was a big one. Um, oh, I'm going to share I'm, I'm going to share a video in the coming uh, days once I can get it edited of a client who had had the vaccine the previous week and their physiology was like dark eyes, sunken. They're oh, feeling pretty good, and then taking them through some energy work, and then even I was blown away by the, the physical shift in their whole facial features. So there's all sorts of different ways to do it. It's just mm -hmm. being open to the experience and seeing what shows up. Yeah. I wanted to touch on one more thing, Pete. Uh, how many kids do you have now? Six? Six. Yeah. Yeah, and so, three biological and so you, three fostered. Yeah. So tell us about what was the what inspired you to, to be a foster parent and tell us about that experience of of having these three new children come into your home and, and navigating that situation. Oh wow, dude, the conversation just, just got started, didn't it? Um <laughs> oh, I could talk about my kids all day long. I mean, so we've got Reuben, Franklin and Sophia are our biological children. And then we fostered about two years ago, beautiful little baby Joseph. So he was just almost about to turn one year old in hospital. Um, I won't go into the backstory because we don't need to. Like, the foster system is there because the kids aren't safe. So if we if we leave it at that, so he's in hospital. He wasn't even one year old yet. So there's a real reason why that. That's not nice. He's an Aboriginal little boy, 
Um, so we originally wanted to foster a, for a, a crude way of putting this, but just, you know my intent is love, a white girl. So we had two boys and a girl, and we wanted another girl. And we just felt compelled to foster. We thought, well, we're blessed to be able to conceive and have children, um, but there are people out there that need some help. So there's that, you know, a benevolent calling, I guess. And it's funny because it happened mainly for my wife, and she would relate it back to when she was a teenager. And she saw, funnily enough, a little Aboriginal boy that was naked uh, walking on the street, and he had nowhere to, she followed him home she, to, just to make sure he got to where he was going. But that really impacted her. So that one experience really made an impact on her. She would have been 18 or 19 years old. So then wow. many years later, um, we talked about fostering, and we went to an introduction seminar that um, this provider was providing it um, locally and decided it wasn't for us. A year later, she just starts seeing things around. And as soon as she mentioned it to me, it's like, would you like to look into fostering again? And I was just like a resounding yes. Yeah, like I'm, I'm ready now. And she was ready. Yeah. So there was this amazing thing where we, like, we talked about it. She was certainly the instigator. I was open. We said yes. You still there? Yep, slight, slight freeze, keep going. That's okay. Um, and then a year later, we went away from each other, away from the idea, a year later, came back and was like, yes, it's on. So then uh, went to another seminar and just, yeah, the ball rolling very quickly. So started off with baby Joseph um, and that was incredible. Totally like high medical needs, Aboriginal boy, some real damage on every level. And we were like, what? Like that's, that's not what we were initially thinking. Like we were thinking a playmate for our beautiful, healthy, happy daughter. Um, and so this was very different. This was very different. We are so glad that we said yes to something that was so different to what the picture was in our head. Six months after we brought Joseph into our home, we realized that he had an older brother and sister that were also in the foster system. And their carers at that time, who had initially just been interim carers for two weeks, eight months later, they were still looking after them. And they had, they had grown up kids of their own and they already had two foster kids. So they had the full dance card and they both worked full time. So it was very full on for them. They didn't sign up to be full time foster carers for these, uh, for Peter and Faye, these, our other two foster children. So when we found out that they needed a place to stay, we just thought, oh my gosh, like no one ever asked us to take them on. Cause I think I thought it would be impractical. We, have, we had a three bedroom home at that point and we've cut one of the bigger bedrooms in half to make two bedrooms. Uh, so we've now got a four bedroom home, but um, there's two people in every room. Like it's, you know, we weren't, we weren't built or set up to take on three, to double our kids, right? But, you know, whatever phrase you put on it, where there's a will, there's a way, and things fell into place. We're very, very well supported here locally. The groups, you know, DCP and Centre Care are amazing in their support. Sometimes a little bit slow and political and red tapey as government department, but I'm so glad that they exist because these kids just would not, would not have the opportunity they have. And all the foster kids, you know, whatever the system can do it's better than where they were in in most cases you would you would hope anyway and that's certainly been our experience so yeah that that compulsion to follow that through and where we are now and we've sort of just recently you know last six to 12 months or not even that but last six months or so things have started to balance out but it's it's been a roller coaster it's been massive at every level like you pushed and pulled in different directions and i can come in from an ice bath being all fully zen and within one or two minutes of two or three kids screaming, Daddy, look at this. It's like, what the hell just happened? Like, oh my, I've just been transported from the top of a mountaintop into flipping, you know, like it's mayhem here. Um, <laughs> Paul Check is a guy that I've learned a lot from. And he said the shortest path to enlightenment is raising kids. 
And I remember when I heard that, I'm just like, oh, yeah. Like Brilliant. it's one thing to find presence and calm and peace in an ice bath when there's nothing around you or when you're on a beach and there's no other noise. Obviously, like you'd be blind to not see peace in those moments, right? But I think it's vastly different. And this is really what I feel like I'm called to do, again, is to be the example of a potential possibility that even in the heat of that exchange with kids, oh, man, like when they need to borrow your peace and you're struggling to find it for yourself, wow. Like that is where the rubber hits the road. Um, so in a nutshell, Ian, I, don't, I can't even remember what your question was, but it's, it's been an amazing journey. It continues. We're up for the challenge. We love it. It's very testing. I've questioned my relationship with my wife. I've questioned whether we're meant to be together, how we're going to work these things out. Um, I've questioned whether we've made the right choices in fostering kids, in having kids, in being a coach. I feel like an imposter syndrome sometimes. I feel like this. I feel materialistic sometimes. I feel like a charlatan sometimes. I feel like I'm ineffective sometimes. I feel like I'm over the top sometimes. All of those things. But that's the smaller percentage now. It used to be the dominance. That's the smaller percentage now. I don't know if it will ever go away. It's, I'm certainly aware of it. It's certainly in a place that is useful, that helps me connect with other people where, where it is dominant in their life. And awareness is the key. And kids certainly bring awareness to life. Yeah. Living life like a child, like yes to that. Yes to that. <laughs> and I'm so happy to be reminded of that from six, six different perspectives every single day. It's wonderful. Brilliant. So all I asked for you was to uh, tell us a bit about it and, and you did that and more. Um, yeah, credit to you, Pete. That's that's phenomenal. And I love what you said about being a remote role model. And and you're right, that children are just they're such powerful teachers. Yeah. And they can they can find something within us that we didn't know was there, whether that's good, bad or indifferent, and then they can also bring us back to a wonderful feeling so quickly as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, man. Could literally keep talking to you all day. We're going <laughs> to wrap it up there. Pete, that was freaking awesome. I knew it would be. Uh, yeah, man. Some awesome interaction. Thank you for those people who were on here live. Janda, Sonia, Capriel, Byron, Joanne, uh, Joe, and for all your contributions, fantastic. Judy Snehal, uh, Tappy, yeah, fantastic. It was, yeah, epic, mate. Thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate you. Uh, I appreciate all that you've given me in the past and for you having this conversation with me. Thank you, brother. You are so welcome, Ian. Thank you for doing what you do and for being who you are. And the light that you're sharing with the world is so, so needed. You're doing it so well with style and pizzazz and with your own energy. Uh, and it's wonderful, man. I, I love uh, being in touch with you and in contact with you. And thank you for all the, the healing that you've sent me and the, the help that you've been to me with inspiration. And this won't be the last time we speak. I am sure of that. So thank Absolutely. you very much. Absolutely. You're welcome, mate. All right. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grief Code podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please share it with a friend or family member that you know would benefit from hearing it too. If you are truly ready to heal your unresolved or unknown grief, let's chat. Email me at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com. 
You can also stay connected with me by joining the Grief Code community at ianhawkinscoaching.com forward slash the grief code. And remember, so that I can help even more people to heal, please subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform.